when people haven't been through traumatic things, they see life in a very creative way, right? Opportunity. They don't see where things can be halted or things can change. They don't see those realities. You think it through in a much different way than the normal person would that never been through anything this traumatic. When I used to come back from playing, I would see a lot of kids that I remember wanted to play ball, but then because the park started getting run down, the gangs are really coming into the park. What can we do that can be impactful right now that could bring life back into this area that kind of given us life and given a lot of people who come through this area life. Welcome to season two of the Crime Survivor Speed podcast. My name is Aswat Thomas. I'm the National Director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. We are a national network of 185,000 victims of crime across the country and our membership is growing every day. If you haven't already subscribed to stay up to date on the latest podcast episodes, you can do that on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other streaming services by clicking the link on your screen or going to the website at www.cssj.org backslash podcast. So today we'll be uh, shining the spotlight on another trailblazer in the survivor movement. Kojo Mensa is a graduate of Duquesne University. He's also a former professional basketball player and the founder of the Transformative COSA Foundation, but also he come into the space as a survivor of gun violence. Kojo's advocacy has had a hugely positive impact on the Canarsie community in Brooklyn through a lot of targeted economic and professional development initiatives also from advocating for quality of life improvements to shaping youth minds through mentorship. And Kojo's leadership really represents the essence of positive community transformation. And I know Kojo will have a lot to discuss. So uh, Kojo, welcome to the Crime Survivor Speak podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Oswald. I appreciate it, man. Let's start with our basketball career. For basketball, it's more than just a sport for so many of us. It's a passion and also a form of expression so we'd love to hear how did your connection with basketball evolve from your early days growing up in Ghana, where you were born, to your college and professional journey on the court in the United States and abroad? You know, I was born in Ghana, but I came really young. Basketball was something that was very far-fetched for us there, probably on TV or you probably see someone running around with maybe one of the NBA guys' jersey on, especially for Africa. It might have been like a Lajuan or Manute Bowl, <laughs> something like that. But when my parents brought me to America, to an area called Canarsie, Brooklyn, is where I realized basketball was just what everyone did in the area and how people connected. So basketball for me, growing up, was my way of like making friends. It was never something I was like pursuing. I remember there was this one summer, there was a kid, I remember his name, man, Shahid. He was just so good, like all the guys would pick him. And when he came into the park, the park stopped. They gave me such a fascination for the game. They were like, wow, he's so good that he's able to create this image for himself. So that made me go to the park every day, mimic what he's doing, how he played. So I took what I saw with him and practiced really hard. Ended up playing with a team called St. Vincent. And they were like this organized CYO team where a lot of kids who knew about basketball and took basketball serious went to play. So I begged my dad to say, hey, I want to go over there, I want to try. But it was one of those teams you had to pay for, so my dad was like, I'm not paying for that. So I was like, all right, let me at least go try out. You never know what happened. I went there, made the team. I didn't really know if I was good or not, but I was just there. 
running 100 miles an hour, trying to do what I can from what I learned in the park. And for some reason, I guess what I picked up in the park translated well to that game to where they looked at me and go, hey, we would love for him to play. So my first organized like basketball was with St. Vincent Ferrer in Brooklyn. Through that, I was able to learn the basketball system, learn the fundamentals of basketball the right way. That again helped my social skills. I started meeting a lot of people within the basketball circuit, which is like the AAU circuit where you play a lot of summer basketball, the travel team. So I ended up playing with Riverside Church, Juice All-Stars, one another Brooklyn team called us FYA with Carlton Screen. This is where I was able to like travel to different like cities and parts of New York to play against teams within these boroughs and cities where I really got to see how big basketball was. And this is how my parents also started realizing like, oh, this sport is more than just him going to the park and playing. This is actually something to pursue. So they started supporting me and allowing me to travel more, be around those people more. Because just coming from an African background, they're just like, hey, you're either going to be a doctor, engineer, lawyer. That's it. That's what they know. They know, go to school, get your degree, go work. But they actually saw what basketball was doing and shaping me as a person and the opportunities that were coming with it. So it helped me get into Bishop Lockley Memorial High School, which is a prestigious high school in New York. A lot of basketball players came out of there from Reggie Jesse to Brian Brown to Mark Jackson to Curtis Sumter to guys that's in the NBA now from the Champagne brothers where, you know, Julian and Justin Champagne, Keith Wright that's at Cincinnati now that's also going into the NBA. The school really had a lot of talent. It was known for basketball. I was able to go there, play really well there, got recruited out of there. But I had to do prep school for one year, and then I transferred to Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. That's an Atlantic 10 conference. That's when the situation came into which has us in this conversation today. Thank you for sharing that, man. You come from a, a, a rich tradition <laughs> of prominent college players and also NBA players as well. But something that you mentioned, I want to come back to utilizing basketball to help with social skills. And also, we're blessed to be able to play AAU travel within the state where, you know, traditionally, if we wasn't playing AAU, probably wouldn't have been able to do that. But also had opportunities to travel across the country as well. Can you talk a little bit about that experience of traveling and the impact that had on your outlook on life, seeing so many different experiences outside of your own community? Oh, yeah. Outside of my, my parents bringing me here to see what the difference were between Africa to America, especially New York City and Brooklyn. Traveling with the guys, I got to see different lifestyles from the kids, the way that their parents raised them. You know, you get to be around different backgrounds, right? So you, your social skills really change a lot. Yeah, I come from this, but I have 11 other teammates here who everyone else comes from a different background, right? So we have to figure out how do we relate to each other? How do we become a good teammate? And then taking that and being able to go to different cities where we're all competing for the same thing as a team when we traveled here. But these things help you expand your mind, right? You started to learn things, you started to pick up things socially, talent-wise, how big the world really is. Because sometimes when you grow up in certain atmospheres, you just believe like that's just what it is and that's all you know. Because in Africa, that's all I knew. And then when I came to Brooklyn, that 10 to 15 block radius to 20 block radius is all I really knew until basketball took me out of that and started showing me things outside of that. So it also made me come back home and train harder and train smarter and better and understand like me just going to the park and think I'm the best guy on my block doesn't mean anything. And going out into the world and realizing they're doing the same thing. They're the best player on their block 
then becoming the best player in their school, then trying to be the best player in that state. Right now, leave being the best player in that state. Now you're trying to be one of the top players in the country. Then you're trying to be the top players in the world. It changes you and realize how narrow that gap of making it to certain levels become by based on what you're able to do. You giving me flashbacks, right? <laughs> Those tournaments, you know, we all in the van, yeah. going to another state. We got to grab this pizza at the hotel. Yeah. We at the hotel, <laughs> having fun to play a game, running out of hallway, right? Those, mm-hmm. Just some of the, the innocence and just a love for basketball just exposed to so many different things. I tell people all the time, basketball is just, it's more than a sport as you just laid out. You and I, we share experience of, of being college athletes, traveling the country, meeting so many people from across the country, also being educated as well. But you and I also share that difficult experience of having our basketball careers impacted by gun violence. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your experience of surviving gun violence at your school? It feels good to be able to talk about it. Before, it used to be something really difficult to talk about it, so I'm actually, like, happy I've gotten to that place and I can actually speak about it so clearly. We was at Duquesne. This is my year. I transferred. also transferred in with a guy named Sean James, who was the nation's leading shot blocker, kind of beat out Shaq and all those guys. Aaron Jackson, Played overseas over there in Spain, Israel, and then ended up getting picked up by the Houston Rockets. Olajuwon's nephew was on the team, so which was a full circle for me, right? Growing up, I'm seeing kids in Olajuwon jerseys. Then my teammate is his nephew, which was nuts. So that year, we're like preparing for like our preseason tournaments and thing that stuff. But our coach, Ron Everhart, was really big on us supporting other activities and other programs and other initiatives with the school. So one of the initiatives that was really big that they kept reaching out to us to come support was the Black Student Union. And they were doing an event, bring all of the athletes, the creatives, the different people in certain fields of math, science, and they, they had an event, basically a party. Myself and Sean lived very close to each other. We were taking our time to get there. We ended up leaving the house, let's say 7.15. Walk over to where the party's there, the rest of the team is there. Party's cool, not a problem. Fast forward, everyone's mingling. Now the party ends. So as the party's ending, there's one exit. So it's taking everyone a little while to get out. So my teammates beat me out, chill behind. So I was very laid back. So I wasn't like in a rush to do anything. It's still a college kid, you know, I'm trying to see how my night can end. One of the last ones to kind of leave as far as my teammates, I'm like on the phone and my teammates like, let's say a full basketball court away from me. So I can't necessarily hear what they're saying. So then I see a little bit of pushing and shoving, so I speed up to try to catch them because they were a distance away. But as I even try to attempt to catch up, shots are going off right away. So my natural instinct is to go for safety. I didn't really decide which building. I'm just running towards the closest one, which might have been like 20 feet away. As I'm like reaching for the door to pull the handle, that's when the first bullet hits my forearm. So it drops my forearm. That's when I realized, like, oh, wow, I just got shot. So then as I then take my right arm to pull the door, that's when the second one hits my shoulder. Luckily, like, I opened the door enough to be able to get inside and, like, just roll in. Which, as, like, college campus, you know, there's that first door, but then you need the key to get past the second door. So I'm in between the first door where it opens and the second door where you need the key at. So I'm in, like, that hallway area. So I, there's enough room for me to, like, slide behind, like, one of the walls there. So I'm not really seen, but I'm, like, laying there. So as I'm laying there, the shots are still going off. I'm seeing shots hit the glass. I'm hearing screaming and stuff outside. And it's going off for about, like, 15 seconds. Like, it felt like an hour to me. 
as I'm sitting there and I'm like holding my arm, a student coming out down the hall out of the elevator sees me go, hey man, are you okay? I'm hearing all these ruckus outside. He sees me go, wait man, are you shot? But not realizing it, I literally ran into the medical student's building. So he's there sitting there ripping my shirt, wrapping my arm up, holding me and standing there. I'm sitting there weak as blood is coming out. I'm telling him I want to lay down. He's like, can I'm like, yeah, can I get something to drink? He's explaining to me why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. So just such a blessing that I ended up in the medical building with someone that's literally practicing to become a doctor is literally sitting there helping me through this whole process. He never left me the whole time. He literally wants to help, stay with me, talking to me, keeping me up, waiting for the ambulance to come, came in the ambulance with me. So I do remember him. As I'm coming out, there was a female that was in such shock as I'm coming to the ambulance that she was just sitting there, just crying into the tears. Not till about two years ago on Facebook, I don't know how we found each other, but she wrote me, say, hey, are you Koja? And I'm like, yeah, how you doing? She said, you may not remember me, but I was the female that I was crying and distraught. And that day was so terrifying to me that I ended up having to transfer to school and I went to some real psychiatric problems that I had to go to full therapy and couldn't go to school for about four years. So she's telling me this and I'm just like so apologetic. Not like I wanted this to happen, nor did I was the one doing it, but how it affected other people like that. It affected her livelihood, affected her going outside. She left the school, like she was just traumatized. So that night, Sean got shot in his foot. Olajuwon's nephew got shot behind his head, ended up surviving, but never was the same. Aaron ended up getting picked up by the Rockets, got shot in his hand, but went through. So he was okay within a few weeks. The last one was named Stu Baldonado, was such a great, like, power forward for an All-American. He got shot in his leg, but it traveled up through his stomach, and it came out. We had to have such this intense surgery um, because of just what, the way it traveled and cut through him. And then, yeah, I didn't find out everyone that got hit until I got in the hospital about two, three days later, and they started telling me these things because, again, they thought that these people were coming back for us. They were just high-intense security measures while we were in the hospital for a couple of days. And then when they started relaxing, when they realized this was not like necessarily targeted, but just an unlucky thing to happen because an argument happened between a teammate of mine and another guy who was brought on campus by a girl that went to the school. But she might have been dating him, but not anymore. And I guess she was talking to one of my teammates and he might have been flirtatious. And that kind of what sparked it. So that's what I was told. Wow. You always look for the blessings in these type of experiences, right? With all the commotion going on and you're shot twice and you're hearing more gunshots and you're just trying to flee to safety and you run into the medical student building where you met a medical student who was there providing you that care immediately. And also like being able to have someone to walk you through the process of what you were experiencing in that moment, physically and psychologically, like those are life-saving measures that happened to you. You got shot, your four teammates got shot. Aaron Jackson, who's actually from my neighborhood, everybody was like, Aaron got shot, he's at school. Just like the impact of yeah. leaving the inner city community surrounded by violence and you go to school, and this happened to you all. So you also talked about the impact of this shooting, the physical impact, the psychological impacts, right, from 
y'all who were shot, but it's also this young lady that has traumatized her for years, but also the impact on everybody who was outside that day as well. After that shooting, as you were recovering, I'm curious to hear, was there any support services to help with the physical therapy that everyone needed, but also the psychological support, the counseling, the mental health support? What was the support for you um, and others to recover from that, especially psychologically? That's such a great question, man. Uh, And I say this with all transparency, but I think this is when I really realized what being black in America was. Like, I think this is when it kicked in because even though we were the victims, there were stories and publications where it made it seem like we deserved it and we brought that energy to the school. They started like going to our parents' homes and finding out anyone else that was close to us. They started digging into our backgrounds to find out who we are and like, is this the type of life we have already? And they tried to spin this narrative on us about that black and coming from aggressive and violent areas that this is just a norm that they brought to a college campus that has never witnessed things like that. There were publications that were trying to dig into us and find out where we were from and our backgrounds. I remember them going to my parents' house where I seen my cousins and my little brother on TV and they're talking about who we are and so publications that kind of stood by us. It was like, these are college kids with futures, with bright futures that could have ended. So why are you trying to now destroy their characters? So they were on both sides of that. But the city of Pittsburgh itself was not a very welcoming city after that. Where we went, you felt the eyes, you felt people keeping their distance from us because it's a small city. So when that happened, that's literally the biggest news for months. So as soon as that broke out and came out, our faces were everywhere. If we tried to go to the mall, of course, we were still in like crutches and you know, bandages. You would see people literally cross over to the other side of the mall, walk into a store, wait for us to walk by. So you, we, we felt it. It was very difficult for us to find a lawyer, too, that would want to back us up. And that was also a difficult thing because, again, it's more of a Commonwealth area. Supporting us against that city, that school, was really difficult for most people to try to take on. We found one, but not much really came from it. Outside of like our medical bills paid for, it comes some of the like school bills we may have had when it comes to like lunch and food stuff. But other than that, man, it's, it was a really difficult trial. It, it was really difficult for that kind of support. So a lot of people of us wanted to just go home for a while and come back to be around that kind of like love and support. But in Pittsburgh itself, it wasn't that way, no. Man, that's, it's hard to hear for several reasons. One is the lack of support for you all and also the students who were at that party hosted by the Black Student Unit, primarily all African-American students who were either impacted directly by being victims and also traumatized from witnessing that incident. So not a lot of support for you all. And then you all, as teenagers and and young adults, went to school for a purpose, to get your education, also to play basketball. Now this incident happening, like you all being blamed for this incident and just the narrative in the media that didn't see you all as victims, often seeing you all as suspects that you all contributed to your own victimization. Just being in that community, that was your community. One thing I really noticed that I didn't realize how many people this has happened to. 
Yeah, I've seen it on TV. We've heard about it, but it was so many people that has happened to. And then there's so many people that can say, man, I just didn't have no one to talk to, right? I didn't have anywhere to go. When I came home, I was more champion for going through it than it is feeling like a victim again. And I definitely went through that, right? Where I remember coming home and the first thing people were telling me is that I should start rapping. I'm like, what, what do you mean <laughs> I should start rapping? They looked at it like, oh, it's just this 50 cent kind of thing. I'm like, no, like as black men, it's like we're not seen or looked at as like we can possibly be victims. Everything is more, nah, you're tough, it's cool. Like they say in that movie, where does it pain and fool? You didn't die, right? You'll be all right. There's no like sympathy for it. There's no like, man, that should not be happening to you. I'm human just like everyone else. It's kind of like, this is your badge of honor now. So you didn't respect the fact that I'm trying to go, that I'm going to school, that I'm actually playing ball, I got a scholarship. That thing wasn't respectable. Me and being shot was respectable to you. The way it messes with you psychologically to see now when people get into these things and the amount of glorification that comes with it makes them feel actually like superior. So I get it. The outlook of, oh, what happened to me wasn't actually that bad. This might have, should have happened. This helped me. No, you are a victim. You went through this. That's why now, as all of these things that's been happening, more of these rallies about what Black people and Black men go through, why you now start seeing like, yeah, we are victims. We use these things because we realize there's no other outlets to allow us to sit there, go through it, speak on it, grow from it, where we just have to use it as crime survivors to just continue to go on. There's no real sympathy around. There's no one to stop it for us to go, hey, man, sorry that happened to you outside of them. Man, damn, oh, you survived that, man? Now you a real warrior. Let's go. So I get why a lot of the kids and the people are the way they are and why they respond the way they respond to these things. Like these type of conversations are important. Like I remember when I got shot, I got shot in 2009. I had just signed with an agent. I was about to leave to go to Europe to start my professional basketball career. But I was shot three weeks before I was supposed to leave. I took over to Europe. I got shot twice in my back. Bullets were inch away from my spinal cord. Two collapsed lungs, suffered internal bleeding. I was in really bad shape. My doctor said it's a miracle that I survived. And I remember like being discharged, right? I remember my doctor and my nurses. I remember them telling me and my mom about the physical challenges that I would have after being discharged from the hospital, my recovery was in Hartford, Connecticut, on my mother's one-bedroom apartment on this old, hard couch that she would never get rid of. So I'm recovering from these two gunshot wounds on this hard couch. And my doctors, they told me about the physical challenges, which I was focusing on, but nobody ever told me about the psychological effects of that shooting. Suffering from the flashbacks I think I still have an issue with sleeping today. The nightmares, the, the PTSD, the anxiety, the stress, the paranoia, the depression that I was going through. Nobody prepared me for that part of being a victim of gun violence. And I think a lot of people, especially young people, don't hear the true stories of what happened when you are a victim of gun violence. Like the pain that you go through physically from those bullets, some of the worst pain that you could ever imagine, but then also the psychological effects of dealing with that and surviving that and often still have to you know live in these communities that we live in where there continues to be high rates of crime and violence but little to no support
that shooting changed my life and really started to get into more community, more advocacy work. And you, you've made that remarkable transition from professional sports, being an educated black man to now founding your own nonprofit as well. Can you share what inspired you to start the COSA Foundation, especially focusing on the Canarsie community in Brooklyn? When you were released from the hospital, right back into that community, right? I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize, once you're going through something like that, you lose the opportunity to be delusional. And what I mean by delusional is when people haven't been through traumatic things, they see life in a very creative way, right? Opportunity. They don't see where things can be halted or things can change. They don't see those realities. So now when you go through it, your mind thinks very different. Where to go, how to do things, because you realize how real these things are and how quick these things can happen. So you don't get to have that level of enjoyment like everyone else does. Your mindset of, okay, if I'm going to this place or I'm going to that place, if I'm talking to this person, associated with this person, you think it through in a much different way than the normal person would that never been through anything this traumatic. When I used to come back from playing, I would see a lot of kids that I remember wanted to play ball. What can we do that can be impactful right now that can bring life back into this area that kind of given us life and given a lot of people who come through this area life. So I wanted to create a foundation because there's many things I wanted to do under the foundation. But I knew that there needed to be something that we had to do that people would trust and believe that we're about what we're saying. The driving force behind it would be basketball. It would be where they can come out, they can showcase talent. We can have coaches come out, showcase talent, but within it, we want to have vendors showcasing their businesses, organizations showcasing their businesses. Talent, whether it's music or dancers or dance groups, come out and showcase their talent. Politicians come out and talk about the things that they want to do and show how much this community means to them and why we need to support them and they need to support us. Show the police force in the area why that when you actually engage us in things we enjoy, you'll see the outcome of it. So that was really the driving force behind it, to put that day together because every other area had a day. Coney Island had a day. These are parts of Brooklyn where Coney Island, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Crown Heights, Brownsville, they had days where they celebrated their areas and their communities. And with that, the city and the government will pour more into these communities of helping build it up, helping bring the YMCA's and the youth clubs and the educational programs in there because they've seen the people care and they've seen what came out of it. So that's one of the main reasons why we wanted to do Canarsie Day. And the very first one, I was nervous. We literally had 1,500 people outside there just ready to play, ready to be involved. We went out there, the courts were cracked. We went to Home Depot. We were filling up the cracks ourselves plastering the floors, cutting out the grass that's growing through the court. Like we went out there, repainted the lines. So when they actually seen that we did this and how it came about, like the people in the area was like, man, we need this all the time. We need more of this. That's incredible. It's like, how do you give back to your community? A lot of people talk about it, but you put that into action of seeing a need for your community and being able to make it happen without a lot of resources. Cutting the grass, right? Doing all the, the painting, the plastering the floors. Those are the type of things that really help build communities. But also being able to provide opportunity for 1,500 people to just come together to have fun, to be in community, but also to make sure that we're providing activities like basketball for the youth to get involved, to keep folks out of trouble as well. So I also just heard that Canarsie Day is, is an official day recognized by uh, Mayor 
Eric Adams, huge congratulations to you and your team as well. Can you walk us through the significance of Canarsie Day and what it means for your community? Love to hear any successes that you've heard from this year's event impact that it's had. Canarsie Day means a lot. We're doing it from the heart. We know that let's give them something to do. But I forgot the other part of what Canarsie Day would do, which means give opportunity for them to be seen, for it to springboard them into other phases of their life. So these kids are coming and playing the game. Junior high school, boys high school, women's high school and pro, and then men's high school pros. Not only are the coaches coming there finding athletes, but it's giving them confidence back again to go out there and do things, right? So we have kids that played in Canarsie Day, man. One of the kids right now is in the NBA playing with a Charlotte Hornets named Nick Richards. That was his very first time of him playing basketball with a referee. We put him out there. He was about six foot seven, tall guy, athletic from Jamaica. It's his first time playing with organized people. And I was like, man, just put him out there. Raw talent, running down, blocking shots, catching and dunking, but just didn't know the fundamentals. We thought he would be great. End up being seen by this high school called St. Patrick's. They picked him up, brought him to New Jersey, polished him. Then he ended up from St. Patrick's going to the University of Kentucky. Mind you, we're talking about a kid three years ago that never really played, right? So now that you end up on the University of Kentucky, which is probably top five prestigious basketball schools ever. His second year is entering the NBA draft. That now got picked up by the Charlotte Hornets. That is literally now, he's still there. Full deal, I think he just signed a new deal for another four years. But you're talking about a timid kid from Jamaica that never really played and Kanashi helped him get seen. Another other kid was Riley Alkins. Very shy kid, his very low voice. Came in his playing, talented. You've seen him, he knew how to play. But it just, no one saw him. Luckily that one of the coaches there was very cool with one of the guys at uh, Christ the King High School then going to the University of Arizona and got picked up by the Chicago Bulls. So now we have two guys who literally played, seen, with the big schools, NBA. And then now we have other guys who came and played. One went to West Virginia, playing overseas now. Another went to Syracuse, still there. Another one is at Cincinnati, still there playing. When the other kids got scholarships to be able to go and do other things in their life, right? Everyone is not gonna make the NBA overseas, but it gave them an opportunity. So. That's what Canarsie Day meant to a lot. So that's why I had to bring it back this year. I brought it back this year. I knew it would be a battle the same way it was before because being that we had to stop during COVID. This year, the impact was there again, where the kids were like, wait, it's back. They're coming out wearing the old uniforms, the old t-shirts saying, hey, remember me doing this year? And these kids held these uniforms from 2015. They played and then now we're helping some of these kids go to different high schools now. One of my boys, his son, Dior, neighborhood guy, is about 6'4", playing great. And when I'm looking at him play out there, I'm like, man, what, what school are you at? He tells me the school he's at. He's like, nah, we got to change that. I end up calling my high school going, hey, you got to look at this kid. And they end up looking at him. He's going to end up going in next year. He just had to take some tests to qualify and all that. But that's the opportunity that we're doing. And we're super proud of that. And we want to keep it going. We're keeping it going. As you know, also, it takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot of manpower. So that's the stage that we're at now. We work hard to get resources that can maintain us for the next couple of years and re-up again and have these success stories and have them come back. We're reaching out to them for them to also be a part of us keeping this going. So yeah, Canarsie Day means a lot. 
Man, that's powerful, man. It's not just a, a day. Canarsie is more than a day. But also just think about the impact this having on the next generation. Being able to see folks from the neighborhood, people who they seen on that court are now on the TV. People on that court are in college, having careers outside of sports. That's like the generational impact that you are having in community. So thank you for seeing that void and the need to ensure that your community has something like the Canarsie Day, but also now that you have your own nonprofit, which will allow you opportunities to do more and greater things as well. Coach, it's been a great conversation, man. Before you leave, we'd love to hear people who watch the podcast. They watch it from all across the country. Sometimes when I'm traveling in the airport, someone recognized me through my work was like, hey, I just I listened to the latest episode of the podcast. It was so amazing. For other athletes or even just individuals out there who face or are facing life-altering challenges, what advice would you give them based on your journey of transformation and, and community impact? What I would tell anyone, especially athletes that's going through these type of traumatic incidents, faith, man. For me, there were dark times, man. But honestly, my faith in God really became really powerful during those times, man. I believed in him before, but that's when it really kicked in. For whatever religion you're in, man, you need that faith and you, you need that circle and then that family that you can always lean on. You don't need a hundred people. Sometimes it may be one person or, you know, a couple people that you can turn to and lean to that understands your journey. But I always tell people, man, you need that faith and that foundation. Sometimes you, you don't know where you're going to be pulling that strength from, but you can always pull it from there. So I always tell people to have that faith and that foundation, man. It'll take you places you wouldn't even realize you can go. Most definitely having that faith, that determination, and also life is about peaks and valleys. One thing that my college coach used to tell me when we used to be running sprints, right? He used to be like, you're never as tired as you think you are. Mm. We used to be looking like, man, you ain't out here the one running these sprints, right? But the more he said that, Keep that in the back of my mind. No matter what you're going through, you're never as tired as you think you are, right? And just yeah. being able to keep going because there is light down the road as well. Coach, it's been awesome, man, having this conversation. I know we could talk for hours. Oh, man, I'm, right? I'm here with it, man. You know that. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people who are interested in you, your foundation, and also Canarsie Day. How can people learn more or how can they support the COSA Foundation? You got any social media channels or your, your website that you want to let the listeners know about how to get in contact with you? Oh, 100%, man. From volunteers to people that want to help us financially, help us get to the next level. For our Instagram is COSA Foundation, K-O-S-A-H dot foundation on Instagram. For our website, it's COSA Foundation. There's no dot, so it's K-O-S-A-H foundation.org. Everything is on the website and on our Instagram page, man. Please feel free to reach out. And I would love to hear from people that want to be a part of what we're doing and how we can help out because one of our models that we have and it's on the page and it's on every shirt and everything that we do is with unity, we matter. And that's something that we're going to continue to push Awesome. So reach out, y'all. With unity, we matter. Kojo, thanks so much, man, for being on today's podcast. You do have a partner and supporter with Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. And thank you to everyone for listening to today's episode. If you haven't became a member of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, you can do that on our website at www.cssj.org. Remember to tune into this podcast and other episodes you can do that on youtube apple Podcasts, spotify and other streaming platforms as well 
as you all heard today through Kojo, he's healing, but he's also healing through action. One thing that we say is like when survivors speak, change happens. Kojo, you're making that change happen. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode, and we'll talk to you soon.